Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Craig, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. I wanted to have you back on to discuss some of your work with Fred Hampton. Um, the anniversary just happened December 4th. Uh, I posted up some clips with Mr. Haas about it, but I wanted to have you on as well, too, even though you were on about a month ago. But we never talked about Fred Hampton, and you have done probably a lot more work in that as much as you've done the JFK stuff. But I think you what you do for Fred Hampton, um, it's not so crowded with researchers, which is uh, not, not at all. Yeah, which is important why um, someone out there, someone like you is out there doing the work that you're doing. Well, I, I appreciate it. It's always great to be back. Uh, I think that's a, a good point to start with. That is, it's the Hampton scholars are limited. Uh, just off the top of my head, and this is probably a very comprehensive list, you have Jeffrey Haas, who you mentioned before, been a guest of yours. Uh, I had the pleasure of, of being on it at the same time uh, on out of the blank with him. Um, he was one of the one of the many lawyers who handled the civil trial uh, that the families of the survivors of the raid that uh, killed Fred Hampton uh, had over the city of Chicago. Um, it took 13 years, so obviously they got very close. A lot of lawyers were involved, but Jeffrey Haas was one of the main ones, and he wrote a memoir. Uh, the other one is Jacoby Williams, who's a, who is a, a professor. Um, I don't know where he is right now, but at the time that he wrote his book, he was at uh, North Carolina in North Carolina. But uh, he wrote a book on the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, which of course included Fred Hampton. It's called Ballot and the Bullet. Uh, and then the only other one, actually, who wrote anything of any consequence is John Rice. And he's a bit of a mysterious figure because the only two things that I've ever read from him was his dissertation, which I had to really, really dig to find. Uh, and then he his one of his uh, essays was put in a compilation uh, about the, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So other, other than that, a few people mentioned him there here and there, but but. He, but Fred Hampton as a central figure has never been written about. Jeffrey Haas wrote about his assassination. It was basically a, a lawyer's memoir. And of course, Jeffrey Haas worked on other cases. So he talked about those in the book. So as a singular subject, Fred Hampton has never been examined in the in in any in any main literature that we know of. Uh, and even though his his quote unquote, well, I'm not going to say his life, the last year of his life, was um was portrayed in in the recent movie in 2021 uh judas and the black messiah um again that's that's all we have out there so when people want to go and find out about fred hampton they really have to do a lot of digging and um the problem is is being able to uh differentiate between the fact and the fiction or the man and the myth so that's why I appreciate you having me on and having people like Jeffrey Haas on. If you can track down John Rice, I would love to hear from him. Um, but uh, it, it's it's to be able to give people a place to to learn about Fred Hampton and other resources where they where they might be able to. Why don't you tell me your perspective on Fred Hampton, much like we discussed in our first conversation about Fred Hampton, but also you mentioned the man and the myth. What's the myth and who's the man? Well, for the longest time, it was his assassination that really was the fodder for everyone's canon. That is, when Black Panther Party members, and when I say Black Panther Party members, I mean national Black Panther Party members, uh, when they wrote their memoirs, from Bobby Seale to David Hilliard to even Huey Newton, uh, they only mentioned Fred Hampton's assassination. 
as 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 one of these rallying points in the history of the Black Panther Party, or as a demonstration to show how far the police went to try to suppress and oppress and destroy the Black Panther Party as an organization. So he was just his assassination. The fact that he was killed was used as a as a demonstrative uh, point in their history, as opposed to Fred Hampton's life and what he accomplished within the Black Panther Party. Um, prior to his death. Very few people mention it. David Hilliard certainly does. Elaine Brown does because she was she was struck by Fred Hampton's not not just charm and uh, the fact that he was he was an incredibly gifted speaker, uh, but just because of his organizational skills, because he had so much focus as such a young man and wanted so badly to make a difference in the city of Chicago and the surrounding communities. So she was struck by that. Uh, but but other than that, like I said, the the myth is about uh, Fred being used as as a, a slogan on a T-shirt. You you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. Of course, Fred Hampton had a lot more to say than just that. Just as Malcolm X had a lot more to say than the ballad or the bullet, and Martin Luther King had a lot more to say than I have a dream. It, it's it's that kind of thing. Um, and when you don't have a lot of source material, when you when you basically have to rely on a documentary, The Murder of Fred Hampton, or one or two books, and then of course a Hollywood movie, then the 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 lines between the man and the myth get really blurred, and and it's and it's difficult to to really show and demonstrate uh, what kind of um, not only progress he made, but also how much potential he had, because he was only 21 when he was killed. So. So basically the kind of breath that's in everybody's mouth when it comes to Fred Hampton is the fact that what the happens to the Black Panther parties and the assassination of Fred Hampton, not so much as spoken in terms of his life, which is something I think I made the mistake of doing as well, too. It's partially the reason why I reached out to Jeffrey Haas, because that's the only time I've ever heard of Fred Hampton's name. It's getting tossed in with COINTELPRO, things that are now verifiably I agreed around all standards that this did happen. This was real. The government did kill these people. It was a big injustice. But his life is also really, really interesting. I mean, the fact that he staged a walkout for the fact that there weren't enough uh, black girls that were being elected to be prom queen. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. Whether you consider prom queen a good title or not, I know for most kids back in the day, it's kind of like their bread and butter, but it's seriously a big step forward in the thinking and the mindset and also the courage to be able to do so. I mean, staging a walkout and gathering all your friends and students and classmates, whatever you want to say together to be able to really talk about a serious flaw in either the education system or just the systematic oppression of a certain ethnicity overall. I mean, that's important. That should be talked about. But people don't hear that when they look up Fred Hampton. Absolutely. It's those kind of stories. And you're talking about when Fred was still in high school and, and slightly right after he had graduated. And that started a lot earlier than that. As Jeffrey Haas will tell you, the stories that were told to him by his family members um is that fred had that kind of commanding presence that kind of um you know people were just drawn to him because of his charisma and because of of his enthusiasm and just his personality so even when he was a child 
all of the children in his neighborhood wanted to gravitate towards him and towards his household, which was very welcoming. But yes, when he got into high school, it's it, it, the details really don't matter because at that time you're talking about a, a young man who's in high school, and you, you know if you remember back when you were in high school, uh, how 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 um, delineated were any of your you know goals or or principles or or you know social views uh but fred seemed to be very very mature at a very young age and so he parlayed that into action in a in a setting which was high school at that time that was that saw a lot of injustices not just with the prom queen it, it, i mean it's it's it, it it seems a little comical now for you know you know 50 years later but those were the 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 priorities in high school it wasn't just prom queen, it was also dances, school dances. Were we going to have segregated dances? Were we going to have integrated dances? And if we did, were because Black people were allowed into these dances and it was integrated, were you going to um, uh, change the facilities so that they were less than accommodating? Were you going to give a curfew uh, you know, or instill a curfew? Uh, these kind of things. So these were the things that, that Fred was talking about. But Fred also served as a mediator between the parents and the administration of the school, because the administration in the school didn't know how to deal uh, with with social issues at the time, or didn't know how to how to deal with them very gracefully. So here's this basically student spokesperson, this you know um, liaison between the public and the administration of the school. Um, so these were the things that he that 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 affected him and concerned him. Um, in high school and then right out of high school, uh, but also something else that that isn't talked about very much as far as Fred is concerned is his is his uh, political arc, his um, his view of the world and view of the social problems that confronted the United States and also worldwide. Um, you know, beginning his his work with the NAACP or youth branch of the NAACP in Chicago to black nationalism when he befriended Stokely Carmichael, uh, who actually was was responsible for the term black power and the uh, the catalyst for the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense that was started in Oakland, California, um, to, of course, communism, Marxism, Leninism when, when he joined the Black Panther Party. So it was this very unique arc through um, not only black consciousness, uh, black nationalism, uh, but also he worked at uh, Harvester International, which was which was a big factory uh, in Maywood. Um, so he was hip deep in in labor issues as well, uh, which I think kind of solidified in his mind uh, the the direction that the Black Panther Party took, which was more of a a socialist slant. Um, so these are the these are the kind of things that that are overlooked in in most of the literature that you can find on Fred Hampton or the you know websites or postings or 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 what people believe to be the the essence of Fred Hampton. How do you think he developed that perspective or that insight at such a young age? I mean, let's talk, bring it back to high school a little bit and a little bit before that. Do you think that was from overcoming his speech impediment that he had or a little speech defect that he had where he just practiced Martin Luther King speeches and Malcolm X speeches and reading those over and over again that had this type of insight into some very cultural voices that even lasting impacts today? Or I'm sure it's multifactorial, but 
I'm just curious if well, you've ever... It is, but that's a good place to start. Absolutely. Uh, with a speech impediment and, and attention being drawn to yourself and you wanting to be a little bit more effective uh, with even your peers, then you're going to work hard to, to overcome that. And of course, if you're then introduced to the the um, ideology and, and um, the uh the philosophical basis basis of of uh both martin luther king and malcolm x um but also uh his family was was quite devout baptist so he also went to church a lot so he was also very much influenced by the cadence of of baptist preachers as well um but but as far as as his being concerned about people primarily his own people but by extension everybody um, I think that was just innate. I think that's just who he was. And he was, he was able to find, uh, outlets for that and, um, um, and channel that in such a way, uh, at, at the right time, at the right place, because Chicago, of course, was a hotbed for activism, not just in the sixties, but, but even decades before, um, and his parents themselves were, were blue collar and, and also worked at, at, uh, um, labor factories in in and around chicago so he was no stranger to um the plight of the working of, of working americans um specifically working black americans um so mostly it was innate uh but of course <laughs> um nature and nurture um those both of those obviously played played big parts in his life can you coordinate a direct or be able to plot out like a direct correlation, I wouldn't say correlation, but just a change in Fred Hampton from his high school years compared to, I mean, it was a short time span that he had 21 years. Um, I figured he probably graduated around 17 years old, maybe 18. So you got to think three or four years where he was out um, exploring and doing uh, everything that he had done till his, up to his death. Do you, can you see a different Fred Hampton, a change, or do you see this still motivated striding forward with certain issues that he was still kind of obsessed with at a younger age when he was in high school, but now at a bigger platform? No, I think he was incredibly motivated uh, at, at every step of the way. I think the people that he encountered and met, uh, which of course, again, when you have that kind of uh, charisma and you have that kind of um, a personality that everybody wants to be around and everyone wants a piece of well, I don't mean a piece of I mean they they everyone's clamoring for his attention and and for his input um so every step of the way he's meeting more and more people more activists more um organization you know individuals from organizations and uh and different perspectives of different problems um I think that that he was energized along the way each each and every time so the arc his his um ideological arc from from uh well i guess you could say integrationism of the naacp uh and and the influence of martin luther king um to black nationalism uh and then to uh more socialist bent um Every time he he was more and more energized and more and more excited about the path that he was taking, um, so there really was no limit to what the man could have done, because he was making not only the the problems in Chicago that was his primary objective that was his primary concern was Chicago and the surrounding areas, 
But as he grew older and as he went from organization to organization, and there weren't that many, it was just, like I said, the, the NAACP and then, of course, the Black Panther Party because he was so young. But even in those short intervening years from the time that he was in high school to the time that he was killed, he traveled all over the country. And then, of course, even into Canada. This is also something that that is overlooked in the literature um, is being concerned about other people's plight and being able to connect those those conflicts and um being able to coalesce into one movement so when you talk about when he was in the black panther party and him starting the rainbow coalition that was not the only coalition that he ever concerned himself with he was making coalitions in high school he was making coalitions in the NAACP he was making coalitions in the black panther party um, so he was a unifier and he was somebody who could take other otherwise disparate groups and find commonalities and common causes so that they concerned themselves less with what they were fighting against and, and more of what they were fighting for. And there were a lot of similarities. So that's why he was able to go from the United States into Canada, into, well, ostensibly white universities uh, that were very curious about the, the similarities between the plight of um, Black Americans and Native Canadians. And so that's one of the reasons why he went to Canada and made that a focal point of his trip and met with leaders of of Native Indigenous uh, groups in Canada, who then reciprocated and made plans to come to Chicago and see how things operate there and to see the, what the plight of America's was. It just never came to pass because Fred was killed before that could happen. What about Fred Hampton and the March on Maywood? Well, he's, he had several marches on Maywood. Um, his, his concern was, was activism, not simply just sitting around and talking about things and, um, um, protesting in, 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 what we would call socially acceptable or or easily recognizable ways. Um, he wanted to take the issues that were most important to him, the youth of Maywood, and even a lot of adults in Maywood, straight to the city council. So he would attend a lot of city council meetings, and he would bring hundreds of youth with him of, you know, of of his contemporaries and associates. Um, and they would, yeah, okay, they would march. They would at least go from whatever meeting they were having to the city council meeting. They would, quote unquote, disrupt the city council meeting because, of course, they didn't want to hear from the young people. They didn't want to hear from these bands of youths, right? So they would try to keep them out of the council meetings. They would try to um, stifle whatever message they had. Um, but Fred, of course, was insistent and and made it not only local news, but also state and national news whenever whenever he did disrupt. Because Maywood is a small community, or at the time it was. Um, and it was about, I, I think it was like 35, 65, uh, black and white, respectively. Um, but he commanded a great respect of, of many of the, most of the people in Maywood. So when he was affecting these challenges to authority, uh, to the rules that were applied or the rules that weren't being applied, um, then he was very effective in, in 
being able to start stage large rallies or be able to get a lot of people to attend city council meetings to then become more knowledgeable about what was happening in their city and in their name. So he was very, very effective with that all through the stages. Have you come across the varying perspectives on Fred Hampton, either people that kind of look at it less as him being attacked by the government, but also the people that believe that it might have been a kind of a mutual destroyed scenario. Um, I say that because I didn't know until I started posting clips and someone was like, that guy robbed the fucking ice cream truck. And that's when his life started going downhill. And I was like, well, it's the ice cream thing. I think I just put up the clip of it and showed evidence to tell you that, no, it wasn't Fred at all, but that's more of a, it's like Kennedy in Vietnam. Did we know he was going to pull out? I mean, it wasn't, the record is just like a etch-a-sketch, you know, it just got, it got wiped, but there wasn't a clear like distinction of, no, he did not do this. This is not what happened. There was another trial and appeal later. Um, but that doesn't really get talked about. It's just, here's the instance, here's what happened. He was arrested and convicted for this. Well, well, it's not even, it's not even that cut and dry, unfortunately, not, it's not even that black and white of all of the documents that I have been able to unearth in the 30 years of my research in Fred Hampton. One of the ones I haven't been able to get my hands on albeit because I haven't really tried all that hard, is the record of that trial. So he was arrested in July of 1968 for uh, allegedly assaulting a good humor truck driver to then be able to rob him of... Well, $71 or 74 Yeah, the, the number varies. It's either $71 or $72 worth of ice cream. At that time, it would have been almost 500 ice cream bars. Um, and as Fred uh, quite frequently quipped, I'm a big man, but I can't eat that much ice cream. Anyway, uh, and it wasn't until 1969, early 1969, in February, that he was arrested, that he was um, not arrested for it, but but he was finally arraigned for it and and his his trial was set for for april early april of 1969 so um the proceedings of the trial which only lasted a week these have never these haven't been released and i and i don't mean to to suggest that any nefarious reasons for that it's just no one has requested it and and even jeffrey haas he I, Again, all the times that I've talked with Jeffrey Haas, I've never thought to ask him, hey, do you have the proceedings of that trial? So the details that went along that trial are, are very sketchy and, and don't come from the actual source, which are the trial transcripts. We just know the timeline of what happened and the consequences of what happened. That is, he was charged with it. He was convicted of it. He was sentenced to two to five years. And even the the circumstances of him being released in August, apparently he he was able to raise enough for a bond, an appeal bond, to be released in August. Was it twenty five thousand dollars? No, it was five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars. Um. So so he could be out on bail while his lawyers were appealing the conviction. So they appeal the conviction. It goes all the way to the state Supreme Court, the Illinois State Supreme Court. And on November 27th, 1969, they handed down their verdict, which was no, the conviction and the sentencing was appropriate. Uh, 
so basically fred had to go back to prison that according to the to the um the illinois supreme court but this is where jeffrey haas would would be much more of an authority as far as what happened then between november 27th and december 4th when fred was killed in the raid on his apartment um there is one person who wrote about fred hampton in a, in a in a collective on the politics of chicago his name is dempsey travis he infers that there was already a, a, a arrest warrant for fred hampton prior to the arrest or not the arrest warrant but the warrant to search his apartment which led to the raid which led to his death so basically one the suggestion is one warrant superseded the other and fred should have been arrested as opposed to his apartment being raided which led to his death so the suggestion is he should have already been out of his apartment and arrested instead of laying there nearly comatose and and an easy target for uh state sponsors assassination uh but i don't know that for sure because i don't know why if the supreme court you know upheld his conviction and his sentence why why there was any leeway between that and when he was supposed to go back to prison now in the judas and black messiah i don't know where shaka king the director uh of of the film got any information that led him to portray this in the film but in the film the meeting at fred hampton's apartment which had preceded the raid on his apartment that is december 3rd they're all gathered around and they're all talking about oh what, what are we going to do for fred um there's even this this exchange of a large sum of money that was raised by the rival gang in chicago the blackstone the black peacestone nation um now it's blackstone rangers blackstone rangers but then they became the black peacestone nation uh they raised all this money for you. Here's your money. Get out of the country. Instead of going back to prison, go into exile with Eldridge Cleaver um, in, in Algiers. Um, and, you know, the, the talk about Fred being scared to go back to prison or not wanting to go back to prison. And he would have. There's there's very little in the record to indicate that that was even a remote possibility. Um what sunk him? Which judge made the statement that based on an interview that Fred did or something, it must have been when he was out on appeal or something, but he made a statement about something. And the judge said that based on the statement that you made in that interview, I deem you as a threat to our society or threat to society. You, you've seen that, right? That's not something I just fabricated. I've seen a statement like that, that the judge made. And he said, based on this statement you made to the media, I cannot legally put you out there because you have a potential to do harm. Something of that sort. And I forgot what it was. It wasn't him saying, I might be a big mother, and then it's blanked. And it says, but I can't eat that many ice cream bars. It wasn't that one. He said something to oh, no, somebody it, in the media. It was, it was the judge, Sidney Jones. Um, and it wasn't that 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 Fred was, was blithe about the whole thing. He, he simply was... I guess showing his frustration in in the whole jurisprudence or the whole process of it. Um, and yes, the judge made that made a comment like that, but that having having to do with his bail or having to do with his sentencing or or something to that to that effect. But that very very same judge then 
uh, endured a lot of criticism from law enforcement agents, um, even the FBI, for granting Fred Hampton the the appeal, the bail appeal. That he raised enough money, he allowed him to then go back out on, on, on bail. So the very same judge who sentenced him from two to five years then granted him uh, bail while his case was on appeal. So and and uh, Judge Jones received so much criticism for that uh, because you're talking about the perception in Maywood about Fred Hampton. Um, yes, of course he wasn't he wasn't considered a saint by everybody, uh, but of course the people who m m drew his ire the most were law enforcement agents. Um, I think Mr. Haas made the conclusion or made based on his perspective that he believes Edward Hanrahan had something to do with the influencing of that judge on that trial. Um, he said at this time he was trying to do something to influence or to kind of stir up his political campaign. He was trying to do a bunch of things so he could be elected. Um, I forgot who, who he mentioned was the mayor at the time, the current mayor. Of, it's a of, bad, of Chicago or yeah, of it's a bad Florida. guy and he has a really well-known name. No, of Chicago. Daly, Richard Daly. Daly, Richard Daly. Yeah, that guy. He said that um, at this time when there was this trial happening that Edward Hanrahan was basically trying to show this is how we treat gangs because he considered the Black Panther Party a gang, not a movement or not a group that was dedicated to get rights or equal rights or just power to black people. Um he considered them a gang and a threat. So he thought, I mean, much like we know with COINTELPRO of locking up Black Panther Party leaders and members um, to show this is what we do. We have a no crime. And if you become a Black Panther, we are going to lock you up. And this is what happens when you associate or join with them. Absolutely. No, Edward Hanrahan was was a, a just a political operative head to toe. All, he was handpicked by Mayor Daley uh, to basically be his successor. So it wasn't just a matter of him being the state's attorney for Cook County. It's he had political ambition through and through, and he was part of the daily machine. So absolutely, he was put into that position as a state's attorney um, and used that as a vehicle for his his own political um, advantage. So one of the things that he did was, of course, wanted to clean up Chicago and how, how you know how else do you clean up a city but you know uh, repress and oppress uh, you know. Um, the most disadvantaged and and non-white uh, people in your city. So that, of course, included Maywood and uh, its black residents. So he absolutely did Daly's bidding. And one of the things that he did was declare a war on gangs, which led to the very creation of the elite police unit within the state's attorney's office, hand-picked Chicago police officers that would the Red become- Squad. This, no, the special prosecution, the special Damn. prosecutions unit. That was the elite group of men who then raided Fred Hampton's apartment. You already had a state's attorney police or the SPU. No, S SAP, SPU was a special uh, the special prosecutions unit. But so the state's attorney's office already had a police force, and it was called the state's attorney's police. Uh, but no, that wasn't good enough. Edward Hanrahan, his his uh, his uh, second in command, um, they both devised a way to have this this elite unit of of handpicked police officers who would then go out and and um, well do things that the Chicago Police Department couldn't exactly 
put their stamp of approval on. Um, the Red Squad, on the other hand, was it was the intelligence division of the Chicago Police Department, and it also had its its you know raiding units and and um, um, special tactics that they used. Um, they wanted to be the FBI, basically. So, um, can I ask what your thoughts are on uh, William O'Neill? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying like I, I when I posted a clip of, of you talking about William O'Neill, someone had a couple of people had reposted it and put rat on the top of the caption, um, which he was. He did rat on the Black Panther Party, uh, which is awful. And he did. He is involved in the murder of Fred Hampton, um, not maybe pulling the trigger, but he led up to those events of that situation happening. But also you can see that with William O'Neill's death as well, too, which has kind of balanced my perspective a little bit. I mean, you can be sick and kind of say, oh, that's what he gets for doing that. I understand that. But at the same time, that obviously that person lived with probably something that was very traumatizing um, to them, knowing that he had blood on his hands uh, where he basically threw himself in front of a subway. So, yes. And, and from a humanistic point of view, I would like to believe that or at least I would like to entertain that idea that he had his demons that was based on a conscience but it doesn't necessarily mean that his conscience was bothering him because of the death of fred hampton and mark clark remember it wasn't just fred hampton who was killed two people were killed four people were severely wounded and then the other were the others were traumatized for their entire lives um but william o'neill so much attention is given to him because he is the one informant within the black panther party the one fbi informant within the black panther party that we know about because of his arrogance partly his identity as an fbi informant within the black panther party was revealed in another case that he was working on when he testified in that case and then it was revealed that he was an informant had been since it's the inception of the illinois black panther party in um, november of 1968 so boom, his identity is there, right? Um, and because of his position within the Black Panther Party, at least his reported position within the Black Panther Party, people assume that he was in a position then to be the one who would drug Fred Hampton and leave him uh, basically unresponsive when the police broke into his apartment so he couldn't fight back and then, of course, be an easy target. I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm just saying that you cannot simply connect the dots because it's convenient yeah. because he's he's the most well-known. Obviously, informants aren't going to be outed like that. So we don't know the identities of all the other informants within the Black Panther Party. In fact, the FBI used that very fear of being infiltrated against those very organizations. You, you, you create this, this atmosphere of anybody could be an informant because the FBI is everywhere. Right. So you had in in chapters and branches all around the country, F, uh, Black Panther Party members accusing other Black Panther Party members of being informants. So even well, the, 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 the gentleman who was actually in charge of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party was Bobby Rush. His title was was deputy minister of defense. That is the highest rank for any any of the chapters and branches in, in, in the Black Panther Party. The second in command is the deputy chairman. 
or the chairman. So on the national stage, it was Huey Newton as uh, the, the Minister of Defense. Then it was Bobby uh, Seal, who was the chairman. So in Illinois, it was Bobby Rush as the Deputy Minister of, of Defense. And then it was Fred Hampton as Deputy Chairman. But because he was the spokesperson for the, the Black Panther Party, Bobby Rush was had no problem with letting Fred take take the, the spotlight. Anyway, all of that to say, um, and now I just went right off the, the train, the track. Um, using that paranoia that anyone at any time could be an FBI informant helped the FBI in creating um, tension within a, in, a, in, a, in an organization. And anytime you have that, the organization could, under its own weight, crumble. Um, and they were hoping, of course, that that would be one of the consequences of having informants in the Black Panther Party. But we don't know the identity of all the people who may have infiltrated the Illinois uh, chapter of the Black Panther Party. So William O'Neill becomes the poster boy for informants, FBI informants. And because he had one filmed interview for Blackside, which produced the wonderful multi-part series uh, in the early 90s, Eyes on the Prize, he becomes then this really curious figure. So now not only do we have what he did while he was a member of the Black Panther Party, but now we have an interview where we can ask him questions. But he was even, even in ans ask, or answering those questions, he was very guarded and very different in describing how he felt with what he actually did. Most people don't have access to his depositions during the civil trial or his testimony or the actual FBI documents from his, his own files, his informant file and his investigative file. And when you look at all of that documentation, what you will find is you will find a gentleman who always wanted to be a law enforcement agent. He wanted to be an FBI agent. But of course, because of his circumstance and where he grew up and the big family that he had and 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 the feeling of uh, uh, being an outcast, um, he took to the streets and then got himself, of course, like like many black young black men in the 1960s, even today, uh, got himself into trouble with the law for petty shit like, you know, marijuana or, you know, um, joy riding in a car. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but then because he got a little bit bolder, or if you could say a little bit stupider, um, he found himself uh, having having stolen a car. Then now he's on the FBI's radar as a potential racial informant. Um, then he's given an assignment by his handling agent, Roy Mitchell, uh, that was off the books, by the way. Roy Mitchell was paying out of this either out of petty cash or out of his own pocket. This was not an FBI expense. William O'Neill, it got to his head that, hey, now I'm working for Roy Mitchell. I'm working for the FBI. So he gets himself a little fake badge, right? And the the, the very, um, he, he worked for Hertz Rent-A-Car Rent at O'Hare Airport. And letting that get to his head, he then takes one of the cars. It is reported as stolen. He's pulled over. He's pulled over with a fake FBI badge. So now Roy Mitchell has to bail his ass out with his own money and basically embarrassed by, by this, this little punk. And he says, okay, wait for my call. Several months later, William O'Neill gets a call from Roy Mitchell saying, 
the Black Panther Party is opening up an office in Chicago. I want you to be one of its first recruits. So boom, now he becomes an FBI informant. Yeah, but that makes it sound like he's more being in the pocket of the FBI because of the fact this guy got him off from some serious charges. Yes, but like I said, his his based on the documentation we have and even the interview that he gave in 1989, he was um he was a, he he had a great admiration for the FBI because it was the greatest police um organization in the world. That's what he said. And he wanted to be. He wanted to have that power. He wanted to have that swagger. He wanted to have, you know, obviously when you don't have power, you want it. Or for a lot of people, that's the case. So his ambitions were now becoming a reality. All this time, as he's growing up, he knew he couldn't become a, a, a law enforcement officer, certainly not an FBI agent, but now he kind of is. Now he's working for the FBI. He's working for Roy Mitchell. So this is this is fulfilling for him a fantasy. And that is the fantasy that 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 took him from being one of the first members of the Black Panther Party to becoming its security captain to then being demoted because all of a sudden Fred Hampton didn't trust him because of his 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 just shit nuts um uh suggestions of how to deal with potential informants or how to electrify the office so that if the cops come in we can electrify them or he just he had some he he was a, a, an agent provocateur at that point so not only was he just providing information to the FBI he was also instigating the black panther party members into creating crimes into into you know that's what a provocateur does well, it's it very make crimes it's very dangerous when um, you talk about like something you mentioned where they were informants were paid more money or given a bonus for juicy information. That's you, you said exactly it was juicy. I remember it stuck in my head like a fucking horrible Fine. nightmare and it'll never Fine. go away. It's salacious. The more salacious, uh, the more they got. But when you give you know this incentive to create more dirt or get more dirt and maybe get more dirt in the eyes of the FBI or create more dirt um, – it, then you have people who might be criminals who become FBI informants that are going to want more money, and they're used to doing things that aren't necessarily up to truthful standards. And that's when you get the raid that happened at Fred Hampton's house. But also, how much did he believe that his maybe record would be expunged because he was doing something for the FBI and they could handle that? The reason why I, I have this balanced approach on William O'Neill is because I've spoken to an ex-CIA person on my show before, and his name's Vern Lyon. I think we've talked about this maybe briefly, but he had a charge on his uh, thing that's uh, – you can look it up on that right now about law – and Law Justica, I think it was. Um, there was an airport bombing, and he had been on the CIA. He wrote a book called College Campus um, or CIA on College Campus. He was literally just – writing down student like uh these democratic groups and these republican groups he was writing down their views and what they were talking about in some of their conferences and discussions and then meeting with some guy in a cafeteria giving him yesterday's newspaper the guy would give him another newspaper and then he would come back with the same info and they would do this like every other day or something like that so that's how he got started into it well the guy knew that he was going off to want to be a rocket engineer that's what he wanted to do and when this airport bombing happened they found him on campus. They had him out to his car. They checked his car and everything. They went back to his apartment, and there he had little test rockets using little bits of dynamite 
in the Rockets and they arrested him and he went to uh well I think he went to um he was getting ready to go to jail like he was on trial and everything for that because they associated him as being the bomber and uh then they offered him a career opportunity he took it they he thought his record was going to be expunged no it didn't happen they kept saying we're working on it we're working on it they never did anything to it uh he ended up did he did go to i think leavenworth if i'm not mistaken for a very long time like 30 something years and then he got released all because uh that when the judges came up for parole um i guess it was good behavior or something like that they two agents came in pulled the judge into a back room and said you're free to go clear of all charges there was no other discussion about the trial or anything and it just went away and you can look that up on law just it says all that two agents that i identified themselves from the central intelligence agency took a judge into the back room and afterwards it says it on there so he's not bullshitting at all but when he was telling me that and he starts crying i go this is something we won't understand unless we're in that position so when william o'neill and i see the train or the subway accident and then i've seen people call him a rat and i've seen the varying perspectives i think you can that's that's justified you can have that because he was a rat he did do something very horrible but at the same time i wonder if he was getting led on by the FBI, and we know they did that back in the day, to maybe we're going to expunge some of your record, some of the things that you have, and you could start anew. I mean, just these incentivization of good hope with no ever full debt, like that, that we're ever going to follow through with it. And so I, maybe that's me inserting a little bit of speculation into that, but I just want to bring that to the table a little bit because I think it is really, really important when you really start having a full discussion about this type of stuff because I think you can't really deny an option because you want to believe that every FBI informant was a uh, murderous racist. I'm, there sure were some out there, but there's also people that are put in positions where they feel like this is their only choice and they might have a different view on the person that we might be defending as well too. And in saying that, not justifying the actions, I'm just saying by having a balanced approach. I mean, people don't like Fred Hampton for simple purposes of his speeches weren't the peaceful Gandhi type that they want to envision. But also when you live in a world of repression and people are just suppressing the shit out of your race, you're going to have some violent, more let's take a stand actions. And that's what needs to be done in a place like Chicago back then. So that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to come. That's a fucking lot I just said, but. No, 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 no. I, no, I completely get it. And and I, I've, I've, dealt, I've battled with this throughout the years as well, um, wanting to have some kind of sympathy for him because the, he was put in an impossible situation just by the, the, the pigmentation of his skin. He was already in an impossible situation. Then, of course, he finds himself in, in, a, in, a, in a deeper situation. The moral is, fuck the FBI. But the fact is, is that the FBI was very good at targeting. See, it wasn't just every black person, you know that was a criminal so we're we're just going to go into every prison uh, which of course was was indiscriminately and and vast majority of of black people in prisons uh again just like today they didn't they didn't go into prisons and say hey you want to get out you want your record expunged come be an informant for us they took these guys off the street and the fbi was very good at being able to identify those people who were most susceptible to it it's kind of like well armed force recruiters all right. When when you're trying to recruit for the armed forces, Jackie Brown, when they found the cocaine in her bag and in the beginning, it makes you think that they planted it on her. And now that she has to go do something. That's why I think that way, because that damn movie, that movie made me think about Jackie Brown being put in a horrible situation. And I think how many people have been like, hey, we got you for this. Or we see someone busting through a window and you grab them. And they go, hey, we found this paraphernalia on you. It's like, that's not mine. Well, nobody's going to believe you anyway. So you're about to be locked up for 45 years, but you can't help us.
No, without a doubt, the FBI gave him an out. But the fact that he always wanted to be a law enforcement officer, specifically in the FBI, the fact that he that he got off on the power, and once he was put in that position, he wasn't reticent about it. He wasn't he wasn't having conflicts as he's going. Oh, hell no. He's put into an important position. Like I said, the captain of security. So now he's in charge of security. He's in charge of being a bodyguard. He's traveling with Fred and with Bobby Rush and he's living the life, right? He can do whatever he wants and he doesn't have any legal consequences anymore. That's incredibly powerful. So, so an almost an impossible uh yeah uh um uh, what what's the word i mean he so, so the the fbi basically has him by the balls right but it's starting to feel pretty good and so not only is he is he enjoying some prestige within the within the black panther party but now he's becoming an agent provocateur that is he's getting black panther party members to commit crimes they wouldn't normally do and of course they get arrested they get um charged with crimes or it goes on their record but it doesn't go on William O'Neill's. So your point about the promise of we're going to expunge your record actually did happen with William O'Neill's case. Not only did it not show up on his record, not only did he not have to serve one day in jail, yes, he was given a, a monetary incentive, but be very, when you're talking about the cautionary tale, it's not just that the FBI would pay for more salacious information. Because the FBI did, even though they weren't very good at it or hadn't become very good at it because they didn't really give a shit when it all comes down to it, to be able to separate fact from fiction. They did have other informants within the party to be able to give the same kind of information to see if it was actually true. Okay, They didn't do that all the time. So, uh, so most of the things that were reported within the FBI files by informants were, yes, monetarily based, so can only be taken at face value. William O'Neill, on the other hand, he's making a career out of it. So even if he didn't give salacious information, he was providing the FBI with a key to Black Panther Party headquarters. Well, that's a bonus right there. He did give Roy Mitchell the details of the floor plan of Fred Hampton's department, which led to the raid, that's good for, for more money. So it's not necessarily just information. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. No, there's there's a bunch of stuff that crossed the line that probably shouldn't have happened. But But he made a career out of it because once Fred Hampton was killed and the Black Panther Party in Chicago basically went down in popularity and, and were essentially... A, a, a completely splintered organization by 1972, which is about the time that William O'Neill was outed or outed himself during a trial. Um, he was still being paid by the FBI. He was still drawing a salary. And in fact, he and two other Black Panther Party members were running a gas station out of Maywood that was funded by Roy Mitchell. So he was bought a gas station or leased a gas station by Roy, Roy Mitchell. Roy Mitchell gives him all of his business, has other FBI agents come and give them the business at that gas station and, and repair shop. Um, so he was he was 
not just enjoying prison free and a, and a you know a, a, having your record expunged, but he was making money off of it. When he outed himself in '72, he went into witness protection, and he was making at least ten thousand dollars every year by through the witness protection program, and he did that until I, well, the record is a, is a, is a little wonky. It seems like 1976. So he was drawing money from, well, at that point, it was the U.S. Marshals, but the government, even though he was no longer a member of the Black Panther Party, even though he was no longer being paid by the FBI, the government was still paying him a stipend and expenses and uh, the cost of relocating, which he did several times, at least until 1976. So he made a career out of it. Yeah, I'm not justifying, like I said, um... And I, I'm not suggesting that you are. It's just I have a, a hard time, like the Shaka King, be, because it was a dual story of Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. They wanted to humanize William O'Neill. And all I can think of is why. Well, it would really, you really can't humanize him if you believe that he was drugging Fred Hampton. I mean, even that can boil down to humanization as well, too. Was he making sure that Fred Hampton wouldn't fight back to where he wouldn't get killed? Or do you think he was just drugging him so he wouldn't put up a fight? I mean, the FBI was known not to give information to informants, the full picture to a lot of people. So did, did they know that the raid was going to be as what it was? Did he know? I have no clue. I mean, it's that's information that we just don't know unless O'Neill might have voiced that expression if he would have known that would have happened or not. But he never did talk about that he knew that they were going to go in there and shoot Fred Hampton twice in the head. I don't think anybody could have pictured that happening at all. No, and I don't think he did. I don't think he knew the specifics. Of course, they're not going to share the specifics with that informant. So, <clears throat> and it wasn't just the concrete, egregious example of the the murders of, of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, that his ac actions, his role directly led to it's the fact that throughout his tenure in the black panther party then even outside of the black panther party he put so many other lives in danger so again it's not just that one concrete example and this shows what a bastard he is i'm talking about the importance of him to the fbi and the lack of conscience that he had at any time during his being paid by the government, whether it was the FBI or it was the marshals, marshal service. At any time, he could have had a conscience because at that point he had gotten married. He had a child, you know, so so when does his conscience kick in when the paychecks stop? No, he made a career out of it. It was a good living. He could brag that he was uh, a law enforcement officer, or at least he was working for the best law enforcement agency in the world. Um, so, so when he met his own fate in January of 1990, and it wasn't the subway, it was on the freeway that he ran out into traffic. Was it his conscience about what had happened to Fred Hampton or his conscience that he could not make a living outside of being an informant or as your commenters said so vividly, a rat? So, you know. We this dive down the William O'Neill rabbit hole. When you mentioned the Shaka oh. King trying to do a two-parter, I kind of feel like we just kind of went that way a little bit too. No, but there, there, do you believe he was drugged? Do you believe Fred Hampton was drugged? 
there was absolutely no doubt medically um, or scientifically, it was proven that Fred Hampton was drugged. Now, uh, again, uh, something that is not mentioned even again in the, the main literature, and there isn't very much of it, Fred went through three autopsies. The first one obviously was from the Cook County. It was the um, uh, perfunctory one. They had to do it. So, of course, they assigned it to somebody who wasn't really even qualified to do an autopsy, right? He couldn't even sign his own auto autopsy report. His supervisor had to. So he performs the, the very quick, very probably uh, um, sloppy, because who gives a shit about, you know, Fred Hampton? He does the autopsy, um, and it's official, and boom. Well, the family wasn't going to stand for that and and knew what 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 the reality of it was, and that is that they didn't care very much, so they weren't going to be detailed, they weren't going to be meticulous, they weren't going to try to find out who, in fact, from this raiding party of the state's attorney's office actually shot Fred Hampton. So they hired a private pathologist by the name of Dr. Victor Levine within 16 hours, the, the next day, he did another autopsy and he established through the toxicology of that autopsy that there was a high level of secanol or secobarbital in Fred Hampton. It's a sleeping agent. It's a sedative in Fred Hampton's system. Such a high um, level of secobarbital that would render him unconscious even when explosions are happening and yelling is happening and glass is breaking and so forth and so on, um, so that Fred would not put up resistance. Uh, um, then the third autopsy was done in February of 1970 under the guise of the federal grand jury. So, <laughs> yeah, but the FBI didn't find any. Thing. And we don't I think Jeffrey Haas explained that it might have faded. It could be possible that could happen. It was found in the second autopsy of the family, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so the second autopsy established the presence of cecobarbital because toxicology wasn't done in the first autopsy. So the second autopsy establishes that there was cecobarbital in the system. Then the third autopsy that was done three months later, after Fred Hampton is not only embalmed but buried in Louisiana, they exhume him. Then they test whatever just um, fractions of blood and vitreous fluids that are still in the body cavity, they test those and no barbiturates are found. But, but what has been established is that given the ingredients, the exact ingredients, because there was a record of it from A.A. Rayner's funeral home, the famous funeral home in Chicago that also... Um, took care of Emmett Till's body in 1955, they had the records of exactly what embalming fluids uh, and chemicals were used in Fred Hampton's body. Based on that, there is there was no way back in 1970 to be able to separate the embalming chemicals from whatever um, natural chemicals or any kind of toxic or barbiturates uh, from Fred Hampton's blood. There was no way to separate the two. So, of course, you're going to get a negative uh, testing for cecobarbital in a body that's already been embalmed and that has already decayed for three months. 
So that that was not unfortunately it became the standard. It was like the Warren Commission. It became the official record. But it doesn't matter what Dr. Levine found. We, the federal government, the federal grand jury, the FBI found that, of course, in, a, in a, an embalmed a three month embalmed body that had been completely saturated with chemicals, there is no cecobarbital found. Well, no kidding. Yeah, I was trying to look up on my phone if how long cecobarbital stays in somebody's system, um, but it just gives you an average about different drugs. Well it's, well, it's not how long it stays. It's it's can can it be detected in a toxicology report if there are mass amounts of embalming chemicals? That's true. Very good point. As well, we Very didn't have the technology back then to separate all of the components of all of the, you know, whatever fluid you you've taken. So it wasn't it wasn't possible. And even if it was, again, I I question whether or not you would have even found it. But the, because given, that... given time, given the time, three months, and again, given given the exposure of the body to embalming chemicals. Could so, that? About to say, could that be something that could be in one of the documents still left to be released on Fred Hampton's assassination? Was a transfer of cecobarbital from the FBI or the CIA or somebody to? Because um, COINTELPRO, I know, is an FBI program, but it's kind of a joint adventure as well, too. It's Angleton and Hoover that were really kind of heads on that front. Um, mostly it was Hoover's baby, but there was a, a joint mixture. So if you talk about chemicals or drugs, CIA would be the responsibility of that department. The FBI could get some from the CIA. But do you think it could be a transfer of Cecobarbital to William O'Neill? Could be one of the documents or could be a letter or a meeting request of a certain type of drug or just something that could be – not where it would probably say cecobarbital in it. Um, it's it's not something I expect to be written down on paper or that oh, we're going to document that says it. Uh, this this is the, exactly the kind of thing that you discuss either over the phone or in person. And given the amount of cooperation there was between the Chicago Police Department, the the um, state's attorney's office, and the FBI, uh, it could have been said by anybody at any time, uh, by any method. Um, the the most obvious one and that can be established through the testimony of the people who were in the apartment prior to the raid, that is the night before the raid, um, food was served, drinks were served. Um, it has been alleged that Fred not only didn't drink, he also didn't do drugs. So the only thing that he would have drank he he would have consumed that night that we can confirm was in fact served was Kool-Aid. So can you put cecobarbital in a liquid form into somebody's drink? Well, it seems it seems doable. Um, but that in itself is speculation. So the fact the how it got into a system will always be a speculation. The fact that it was in his system for me has already been firmly and authoritatively established, regardless of what the third autopsy said. Well, it confirms what the witnesses said, but they tried to wake him, and he would just pop his head up for a second and then put it right back down. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, was, he was a light sleeper. I mean, no, I, believe, I, I believe he was drugged. I do. I just I, I want to know kind of more specific detail on it. Well, again, for me, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't I don't concern myself with who the, who, who did it, because for, for me, it's the fact why would you have done it? What what the act of drugging him? Because what's in his blood actually isn't what killed him. 
It's the lead that was shot through his body that killed him. So the fact that it simply made the state's attorney's police their job easier, that really doesn't concern me as much as it shows the extent to which law enforcement agents went to make sure that there were fatalities in this raid, specifically Fred Hampton. It, it, it is, you want to talk about speculation and my gut feeling, having read the record, having read the descriptions of the four people who were wounded, their wounds and the incredible uh, amount of rehabilitation that that it took to get them back into just a, a, you know a general working order it is my feeling that they didn't want anyone to come out of that apartment alive that is why they took so many um weapons in so each of the seven raiding officers had two to three weapons apiece. They were allowed to bring personal weapons, which means they could not be accounted for um, having, you know, uh, checked it out of, of the, you know, the police armament, right? Or armory. Um, and they brought as much ammunition, of course. They brought a submachine gun. So this is not simply a raid that's taking place early morning to keep to take everybody surprise by surprise to make them easier to arrest, less resistance, and then we're just going to confiscate their weapons. This was a raid that was designed for as much damage, as much carnage as possible. And it was only by the grace of God that that more people weren't killed. But the fact that two people were killed and the fact that they, by whatever method, by whoever supplied it, they had to drug the main target to the point where he would not fight back, that indicates the, the length that, that law enforcement went to make sure that it was going to happen. Why do you think the assassination is the prevalent under, I guess, overall factor when it comes to speaking about Fred Hampton? And people who do know who Fred Hampton is specifically just know about the assassination. We kind of touched briefly about it in the beginning. Um, we went right into his life a little bit, but I wanted to get down to, is it just because that it's a fear for all of us that there is this type of power in the government where other people could be put in that situation as well too, but it's also widely known that there was a certain targeting from the FBI of a certain ethnicity and certain groups um, that were just out of control mentality back then of the government. And I think now with people's skepticism and kind of distrust in the government, I think that's not an article that would be controversial to post, you know, um, you see a lot of not stuff today. about Fred. Not yeah. today. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I just, unfortunately, these were I, all watershed moments in the 1960s. And I think it's a combination of everything that you just mentioned that, that we're, that we are afraid that this could happen to us. As a matter of fact, that was the sentiment as Fred Hampton lay in state, um, and people were walking past uh, his his coffin. Is that this could you know if this could happen to him, it could happen to anybody. Uh, or we're next. That that was also an, a, a sentiment that that came out of, of Fred Hampton's funeral. But I think that it's just the fact that he was killed. It's not even the details of his death that people know about or care about or remind people that that it's it's demonstrative of 
just how violently his his life ended at such a young age. Um, it's just the fact that he died. He's another stat. He's another Black Panther Party member stat. He's another Black activist stat in the 1960s. So um, that's why I'm trying to do more to really accentuate the extent to which law enforcement went to silence this man at such a young age um and and the the severity of that raid and its effect on everybody else who was in that apartment including mark clark who also lost his life again mark clark is often overlooked in discussion about the raid on fred hampton's apartment and certainly the assassination of fred um but the wounding of the others, not only physically, but also psychologically and mentally. And what happened to the Black Panther Party in Chicago, and then ostensibly what happened to the Black Panther Party nationally, when leaders like Fred Hampton were killed. That this that this was, in fact, part of the design, part of the hope of law enforcement or people who wanted to continue the status quo or who wanted to... Um, to slow down the progress of liberation movements in the 1960s, whether it was you're talking about students, anti-war, uh, gay, black liberation, women's liberation, all of them, uh, they wanted so 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 profoundly to and desperately wanted to hang on to the status quo that they would do anything, anyone that that would deem a threat, even a 21 year old from a, a small village outside of Chicago that they would that they would drug him into a stupor so that they could shoot him at point blank twice through the head. Of course, they had already shot him through his body too, so it's you know it's it's that kind of thing. It's just the, the again the extent, the grotesqueness of it, the the sheer violence of it, uh, which I think is is kind of ironic given that. Most of the time that the, that mainstream media in Chicago, specifically the Chicago Tribune or the or Edward Hanrahan's office or the Chicago Police Department, when they talked about Fred Hampton, they talked about how violent he was, even though he had never been arrested for any violence, except, of course, for the alleged beating of the ice cream truck driver. But no gun charges, no shooting charges. No attempted murder by guns, even though, of course, law enforcement claimed that Fred was always packing. Fred was never packing. Do you know why? Because he was on parole. And, of course, the Black Panther Party's, one of its mandates nationwide was we're going to um, adhere to the law. Because the second we don't, look, cops are always already going to find reasons to bust us just because we're black. Don't give them more reason to do it, right? So they were very good about who could buy guns, who could carry guns, even though it was legal to do, unless you had a record or were on parole. So Fred was not, except for his rhetoric, rhetoric that most of the law enforcement agencies didn't even understand. So they were overreacting to speech that they couldn't relate to and could not understand. And for that, violently took out this young man while at the same time saying how violent he was. I just find that ironic. Now, I, I knew I would get you to be able to say uh, 
really powerful, strong rant at some point by getting something. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, <laughs> I have to ask, why do you think it's important to educate people about Fred Hampton? You know, the, the fourth anniversary passed and there was not a lot of people talking about it. Um, so I, it sucks because I, I spent all day and the day before trying to create clips um, just to be able to do a little bit of education on some of those things and post it all over. Um, it's, it was, I learned a lot while doing that. And I think that there's a part that we glossed over, um, not we, me and you, but just the world kind of glosses over when it comes to Fred Hampton. But why do you think it's important to even talk about it now, all these years later, it's, you could say the same thing with the Kennedy stuff too, but why, why is it important for people to understand that it's more than just a like or a Facebook retweet? It's something to look into. Yeah. Cause you'll learn more about the person that's behind that thing that you're posting about is. Well, that's an excellent question, and I want to give it its due diligence, but right off the top of my head, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Number one is, this is a young man who gave his life because he cared about people. You can take the rhetoric out, you can take the guns out, you can take the leather jackets out, you can take all of the, all of the, the outer exterior all, all of the generalizations that make it so much easier to compartmentalize him or put him in a category so you can either like him or hate him and be justified because of it. This was a young man, 21 years old, who from the time he was 17, every day of his life had been surveilled by some form of the government, local, state, or federal agencies, surveilled him every day of his life from the time he was 17 to the time that he was killed at 21, simply because he cared about people. Nothing else matters. The details do not matter. He gave his life for other people. That's enough to justify learning about Fred Hampton. The other thing is, is that unfortunately, if you look at the 1960s and the Black Liberation Movement then, and you look at the plight of Black America now, there seems to be little difference, little progress that have that has been made. From Michael Brown, I mean, it seems like the 2000s, like from the 2000s, we have just kept regressing. And you ask yourself, how could that be? With all the progress that we seem to have made from the 1960s to the 1990s, how is it that we have regressed to this state, this current state? Then ask yourself, well, who speaks for the oppressed? Who speaks for non-white people? And it's hard to name anybody. Then you go, and then you ask yourself, well, who did we have back then? Who did we have back then? to get us to a point of seeming progress only to have us regress. And you look at all of the names of all of the um, people who lost their lives in the 1960s in the name of progress, in the name of love. Sorry to quote you too. But I think that's exactly what they were talking about. One more taken out in the name of love. So... Because those voices in the 1960s were violently ripped from us, 
So whether it's Medgar Evers, whether it's Malcolm X, whether it's John Kennedy, whether it's Robert Kennedy, whether it's Martin Luther King, whether it's the 32 members of the Black Panther Party, from even a local uh, standpoint to a state, to a state level or to a national level, those were the voices that that were fighting for for oppressed people, were fighting for people who could not fight for themselves. And so it's the loss of those people in the 1960s that I think led to, that leads to a lack of cohesiveness in a plan, in strategy, and even knowledge of our own history to be able to turn this shit around and to, and to stop this senseless poverty, uh, the, the, um, the embarrassing uh, differences in resources from education to political power, to economics, to housing, to it, it just goes right down the line of, of um, how disproportionate things are from the poor to the affluent, to the educated, to the non-educated, to the, you know, how polarized we are because um, the voices that unified us a mere 50, 55 years ago were completely silenced and that's why it's important to go back and and to learn those lessons what did they have to say what paths did they did they see for themselves for us and and uh have it be um illuminating to illuminate us into a better place that's why it's important to to study people like fred hampton i want to ask why is it relevant today when it comes to some maybe justice that we can get served for the family. Um, Fred Hampton Jr. is out there, but also, you know, they got paid, what, $1.8 1.85. That's not enough for two deaths and a bunch of injuries and scarring that's going to last the rest of your life, not only emotionally, but physically. Absolutely, especially when it was already, it was, it was determined that it was, in fact, a state-sponsored assassination. So you have state culpability, in the death to the deaths of two young men and like you said the attempted murder of four others actually six others um <clears throat> seven others sorry nine people were in the apartment at the time um so three were on not wounded four were wounded two were killed um yes so 1.85 after 13 years of litigation as i commented to you that's that's not even sufficient for just the lawyers the lawyers earned that over 13 years and everything they went through um, personally and and specifically for the case. Uh, but it had a, a huge impact on their lives. So even for the lawyers, that was not enough. So to dole 1.85 million out to all of the families and individuals and then the lawyers, yeah, it's, that, that in itself is criminal as well. And there was no admission of guilt. Um, e even if it's, even if it's established by the state, um, in absentia, that is, you don't need to have Edward Hanrahan alive to be able to say he was culpable. He was, he was the, the mastermind behind this. So he was, he was culpable in Fred Hampton's assassination. They don't need to be alive in order to, to establish this. And, and nothing was established officially, um, no culpability was officially established. It was just that he, that Fred and Mark and all the others were, you know, 
their civil liberties were were denied them. It seemed like with the survivors, they were put on trial a little bit too when it came to um, the survivors. Yeah. The yeah, the survivors, the even the wounded, uh, B.J. Anderson, uh, Verlina Brewer, um, Doc Satchel, and um, yeah, those three. Nope, there's one more. I'm missing it. It'll come to me. Um, Deborah Johnson wasn't wounded. Yeah, but she experienced trauma. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I'm talking about specifically the people in the North Bedroom. Those wounded people, they were handcuffed before they were given any medical treatment, put into paddy wagons, and then hauled off to jail. So the survivors of the raid were all charged with attempted murder of these police officers who raided the apartment, even though only one bullet could ballistically be linked back to a Black Panther Party weapon. And that one was Mark Clark's. So the guns that were near or around or taken apart and the pieces were around or near the the occupants of the apartment, they were charged with attempted murder. Even I though there's a photograph too where they talked about it was nail holes that they were saying were bullet holes for the Black Panthers, but really it was just exactly. nail holes. Because, because again, the 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 uh <laughs> The, the portal for the state's attorney's office was the Chicago Tribune. I had mentioned that before. They were a conservative newspaper. Um, they were status quo newspaper. And it was uh, it was the voice of, of law enforcement and the state's attorney's office. So uh, in granting an exclusive to the Tribune, the Tribune sent their photographer in. They took some pictures. And uh, one of the pictures was of the back door Um that was in the kitchen that led out to the to the back side of the apartment. And the caption read, yes, these were the bullet holes of Black Panther parties shooting it out with the police from inside to the outside. And yes, and then it was revealed that they were in fact uh, nail holes or or um parts of the of the hinges of the door. They weren't they weren't bullet holes. Um but again, ballistically, scientifically, we can establish that only one bullet was fired from a, any of the weapons that were inside the apartment and belonged to the Black Panther Party. And that was Mark Clark. And I believe, again, ballistically, medically, you position Mark Clark's body to line up his wound. Yes, okay, he had a shotgun in his hand, and then a bullet goes all the way through his torso and shreds his heart just as a convulsion. He he shoots back through the door once. It just goes into the hallway and misses all of the officers. Um, that was it. That was a justification for then the police to come in and fire over 120 rounds to these essentially unarmed people. <laughs> when I say I, that they were unarmed, I mean nobody, nobody, when they woke up, grabbed a gun. Except, okay, I I, I will take that back. Brenda Harris, which again, just like Mark Clark, I think she was sleeping with it. But all of the other occupants of the apartment didn't immediately grab a weapon, which ostensibly, according to the state's attorney's office, was all over the place. That one of the reasons why they pulled Fred Hampton from his bed onto the floor and dragged him into his doorway was because there were guns around his bed. So he, they wanted to get him away from the guns, even though he's bleeding profusely from the two wounds that is in his head and he wasn't moving. But no one except Brenda Harris and Mark Clark 
picked up a weapon. So it was the justification for for the carnage that that the uh, special prosecutions unit then inflicted on on the bodies and the property in that apartment just not justified. And I would like and that would have been nice to have officially been pronounced by um, the settlement in 1983. Not only were there civil civil rights violated and um, you know. But just because we're, we're going to wrap here, but uh, one piece of advice you'd offer to anybody listening that wants to have an interest in Fred Hampton's life and death, uh, where would you have them start? The very first thing is the wonderful documentary. The only documented documentary that has ever done been done about Fred Hampton is the murder of Fred Hampton. It was done in 1971. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Um, but it was a documentary that was not conceived by Michael Gray, the, the creator and director of it. Um, what was conceived by Michael Gray is that he was going to follow the Black Panther Party around, specifically Fred Hampton, and make a documentary about the Illinois chapter and Fred and their daily, um, their daily lives and, and what they did in and around Chicago for people. So they so they followed them around. They uh, filmed a lot of Fred Hampton's um, speeches, but then Fred was killed, and one of the lawyers um, of the, from the of the Black Panther Party um, asked that he come to the apartment with his camera equipment and start filming, because Francis Andrews, Francis Skip Andrews, is is the attorney. He knew that there was going to be a cover up. Or he he obviously assumed that there was going to be one. So they wanted to capture the apartment, at least from film, um, in its original state, right after the police had left, because they abandoned the apartment. They did not seal it. They did not go room by room and treat it as a crime scene, which it had become the second bullets had had entered bodies. Um, so he they wanted to capture the the uh, the, the apartment in its in its original state before anything could be screwed up and then the document documentary then became the other half of the documentary became an evidentiary film that is it showed the apartment it showed um edward hanrahan and their reenactment of the raid and so it, it became a half fred hampton and the black panther party documentary and then the other half was an evidentiary documentary um kind of surreal but um that's where you start that that's where anybody starts then go to the two books that are available right now the one from jeffrey jeffrey haas um the assassination of fred, or how the fbi assassinated fred hampton um and then jacoby williams ballad of the bullet which is about the illinois chapter of the black panther party uh with a focus on fred hampton those are basically the only two um, Fred is mentioned in other works by other Black Panther Party members. I have mentioned Elaine Brown in her memoir, David Hilliard in his memoir. So you really have to do some digging into, you know, the literature to find mentions of Fred Hampton. Um, but avoid, um, <laughs> avoid the film Judas and the Black Messiah. I mean, look, if you're going to, if you're going to watch it as a film, you know, because you like Daniel Kaluuya, who does a phenomenal job um, 
I think he mischaracterizes Fred Fred in in several aspects, but he can only be as good as the material that the director and the producer finds, right? He, he that that that's only as good. And and even if they're giving given conflicting um, information about Fred Hampton, it's still up to the director to decide which way they're going to go, right? So, um, so if you're going to watch the movie just from that, just as a movie. And base base your opinion on that. Wonderful. But if you want to learn about Fred Hampton, or you want to learn about William O'Neill, or you want to learn about the Black Panther Party, that is not the place to go. Where can people find your links, Craig? On I, again, I'm still as I've told your listeners many many times. I'm still uh, I have the domain FredHampton.blog, uh, but I have not been able to add anything to it. But keep checking back. Over the next few months, I, I should be able to finally have um, some essays up on that. We'll be back 10 years later, and he still won't have it up. Probably. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.